one side or that or the other, huh? I'm not quite tall enough. No wonder you two guys aren't up here tonight. It'd just be a little worse. Well, it's good to be here, and I don't remember how many years since we have been, but it's always great to come back and see what the Lord is doing. And my goodness, the building sure looks good. A lot of great improvements. God's house ought to look as good as we can make it. You know, the house is no, not the most important part, and the house is not the church. We're the church, the people's the church, but uh, still it is important. It was great to be with Brother Newberger this morning and uh, the message and the spirit and uh, just to see a baby church coming off the ground. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing. You know, sometimes you pass by these communities down in Florida. You might have them up here, Arizona. Um, they're gated communities for adults only. I told my wife, I'll never live in one of those. Old people bother me. <laughs> and uh, that's the reason I hang out with kids and younger people and so forth. Well, the same is true of churches. Baby churches are good. And every time a baby's born, someone said that's God's commentary that life should go on. No matter how bad we think the world is, you know, God still thinks it's worth uh, Him taking care of and people being here. And then I appreciate your involvement in home missions. I, I remember uh, the beginning of the outset here and uh, all the work the Montoro families put into this and then some investments other people made. And if there's any church that's uh, turned around and, and supported uh, other new churches in appreciation. I don't know if any church has done it better than this one. You can just count on Open Door Bible Baptist Church being involved with as many of the new works as they possibly can. So God bless you for your involvement in home missions. Well, let me invite you to Romans chapter 1 tonight. Romans chapter 1. And before we read, I would like you to do something for me mentally uh, in your mind. Of course, in your Bible right there in Romans chapter 1, probably like mine, large letters, Romans. It might say the book of Romans, but Romans in large letters. I would like for you in your mind to replace that with Americans. Just in your mind. Don't start messing with your Bible, but in your mind. You see, why would you want us to do that? Well, for years, I've had uh, thoughts about the parallel of America with Rome. Of course, theologically speaking, America parallels Israel more than any other nation. And I'm glad for that. But when it comes to socioeconomic things, it's not Israel, really, that uh, we parallel. It's Rome. We borrowed a lot from Rome. Rome's jurisprudence system was over a thousand years in developing. Isn't that amazing? Uh, their legal system evolved over that much time. Ours is only a little over 200 years old, but we borrowed heavenly from them. Rome was a republic. Uh, we're a republic. Uh, we borrowed a lot from Rome. So a few years ago, I just kind of Googled America slash Rome to see if other people had an interest in it like I did. And found that to be right at 50 million hits. Now, I have not looked back since that time, but that's pretty heavy, wouldn't you say? If that many other people have wondered about the similarities. Now, someone says if we don't learn from history, then, you know, we're doomed to repeat our mistakes again. 
And I would think of all the people who do not want to do that, then God's people wouldn't want to. So that's one reason I would say it's very important for us to pay attention to what happened in Rome. And of course, you know, Rome was a world power of its time, and that Rome was never conquered from the outside. Rome fell apart on the inside, morally speaking. Does that say anything to you? Because our great enemy probably isn't from the outside. You know, it's amazing, and I'm not in in opposition to dealing harshly with people that just like to cut someone's head off, Uh, but that's not going to take America down the tubes. Again, don't misunderstand me. That shouldn't be done, and that should be dealt with. Uh, But the point is, our moral situation in America continues to go down, and rather than be concerned about that, our leaders probably have a poor influence on it in a lot of ways. So there's a lot to be learned here, I believe. But we'll not spend our time on that. But what I want you to do is we read these verses to ask yourself, is there even one verse that we read that would not relate to America today? So if we could stand in honor of God's Word, Romans chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible... I hope someone close by has one you can look on with them so you can see the Word of God. We'll begin in verse 18 and move to the end of the chapter and and stop a couple of times on the way through. This section of Scripture referred to by some commentators and theologians as a slippery slope syndrome. You understand that idea? It's kind of like when you go across the top of a hill or something on a road, if it's icy or snow or whatever that's slick. Once you start down on the other side, very difficult to stop. And so morally speaking, this is usually where preachers will turn when they talk about things going down more and more morally. And so we get to the end of chapter 1. We're in a reprobate situation and a description is given of that. But I want us to see a few steps on the way, even in our reading, and then we'll go to the primary message. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that uh, which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Now, we do have people with a lot of degrees, graduate degrees, and some of you probably hold some, and I do, but just because you have an education doesn't mean you're wise. There's a lot of educated derelicts in the United States of America. Now, I want you to see these movements as we kind of head down the verses here, because when you finally get down there, we're into what we call the the gay movement. Let me say right up front, my sin put Christ on the cross just as quick as theirs. And God loved them 
and Christ died for them. Don't misunderstand me. But that doesn't mean that it's okay just because we understand and have a love. But I want you to see maybe some of the steps that happened before they got to where they are and show you how subtle this is. Verse 23, the first thing that man does. And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So the first thing that man did, those that knew there was a God, was mess with God's glory. It could be somebody in this church is messed with God's glory. You want us to inspect each of our lives? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven? Is that what we're, we're talking about? God's glory? It's the first thing they did. They changed with God's glory. That's what man did. And in verse 24, God responds. Wherefore? God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Can you see that? Man does something, God responds to what man did. Second one, verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who was blessed forever. Basically changing the truth of God. I wonder how many people in the churches that we have mess with God's truth to make it fit what they want to do with their lifestyle. Are those who name the name of Christ. Well, it's clearly right here. And so God responds to that in verse 26. For this cause, God gave them up into vile affections, for even their women did change a natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. So we had two moves to get this far, haven't we? We mess with God's glory. We mess with God's truth. God responds. We keep going down. And in third, in verse 28, they're both there. Man in God's response. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge... God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. So it's not like they just woke up one morning and everything was fine between them and the Lord, and all of a sudden it just changed. No, sir. There was a movement taking place, and it's amazing how we can ignore those changes as they're coming until it's so late we don't know what to do. Now, what does it look like? So when you get to that status, this is what it looks like, beginning in verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers. Have I said anything's not true in America? Have I read anything that's not true in America? Verse 30, backbiters, haters of God despiteful, proud, boasters. I used to never even understand what this meant, inventors of evil things, when I'd read my Bible as a younger person and as a teenager. But now you can see these businesses and shops around where that's kind of their business is evil things. But you find that. Disobedient to parents. And that is that not an amazing one now? Many children hold their parents captive. That's dad's fault. 
And dad needs to man up and to take care of that because God speaks to them very strongly. Without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable and merciful, who knowing the judgment of God, they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Now, Father, thank you for the privilege we have to be together tonight. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illumine our hearts and our minds to understand Bible truth. But, oh God, I think our great need in America, and maybe our great sin in America, is we don't respond to Bible truth. Our preachers many times stand in the pulpit and preach Bible truth, and the altar remains empty. Sometimes people stand and listen to the Bible truth and act as if everything in life was right up to the par the way it should be. And that's very seldom true of any of us because we're sinful creatures. And certainly we need to frequent the altar and humble ourselves before you many times over. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd illumine our hearts and minds to understand, but then that we would not just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers Because the Scripture says to him that knows to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. Now, when I look at this section of Scripture, I may be looking for a key verse. Now, of course, every section of Scripture has a burden. And I want to give you that burden so you can be thinking about it in just a moment. But... Many times there will be a particular verse. I noticed this morning Brother Newberger picked one out in the section of Scripture he had. And, and so that's maybe not always true, but many times it will be. Maybe we could call it, uh, you know, the turning point. Maybe we call it the apex or whatever like that. But something kind of pivotal in the section of Scripture. So as I think about the slippery slope syndrome, so to speak, if you could just visualize a car maybe coming up over a hill or... You could even say it would be a roller coaster that's kind of coming up and being pulled up. And it it gets to the top and it starts over and it gets to a certain point and then everything just really kind of just takes off. And maybe you ask yourself, is there a particular verse in here where that really happens? And I believe that there is. I believe it is verse 21. Every time I've read this section of Scripture, which I don't know how many times over my lifetime I've read it, But in the years that I've paid more attention to Rome and America, verse 21 has just flamed up from the page when it says, Because when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, and especially this part, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. The proposition I'd like for you to think about tonight as we consider these verses is unthankfulness is the terminal attitude of man. Unthankfulness is the terminal attitude of man. Well, you probably understand the word terminal better than we do at our part of the country. We use trains a lot more than we do. About three years ago, I took my granddaughter, Emily. She would have been 12 years old. I I told her on on her 12th birthday, I said, Emily, I'm going to take you on a special day. It's going to be my day and your day all day long. And I told her about three months out, and she about drove me insane. 
uh, wanting to know where we're going to go and what we're going to do and any little piece of information I would give her. And, and of course, I wouldn't give her any information. So finally, on the morning I picked her up, it was still dark, about 6 o'clock. And we live in Stillwater, Oklahoma, which is about 75 miles from Oklahoma City. And she says, Papa, I've waited three months, and now we're on the way. Can I know now? And I said, well, I guess so, Emily. We're going to the Amtrak station in Oklahoma City, and we're going to ride to Fort Worth, Texas. And we're going to spend the day in Fort Worth, and we're going to ride the Amtrak train back again. And sure enough, we got on the train, and we rode that down to Fort Worth, Texas. And they taxied into the terminal, and that was the end of the trip. And they told us to get off the train. My wife and I fly a lot. Some of us are going to fly tomorrow. You know, when we finish our flight, they land, they taxi into the terminal, and it's over. And so you get off. So I'm saying then that unthankfulness is the terminal attitude of man. The way we don't want to hear that word used is when sometimes we're into a medical situation. And all of us know somebody, a family member or a friend, who've had medical issues. We hear the word cancer so much and so many others, but certainly the word we would not like to hear is when they say terminal. Because when they say terminal, we know that they're speaking about the end, and it's going to be over, and there's not going to be any more. So again, I want to say that I believe this section of Scripture deals with the unthankfulness of man and that it's the terminal attitude of man and that will really take him down the tubes. Now, normally I wouldn't use as many quotes as I'd like to use tonight from other people, but it really helped me, so I hope that maybe it would help you. First of all, Mr. Spurgeon said, quote, We must thank God for the mercies we have or else we shall not have others. And I've thought about that. I'm grateful for the mercies that I've had. I know what I deserve to a degree. I probably deserve more judgment than I even see. But I know God's mercy has spared me so many times, and I'm thankful for it. And Spurgeon says we should probably all recognize that. And if we don't thank Him for the ones we receive, maybe there will not be any more. I would say that that's probably true, and it would be wise for us to hope that we'd have more. The Greek, Epictetus, said, He is a wise man who does not grieve for the things which he has not, but rejoices in the things that he has. Just the general attitude of life. The Bible suggests, you know, if we have the necessities of life, we should be content. But in this culture, someone's always got to have a bigger house and a newer house and a newer car and all kinds of fashionable clothing, it's just more and more and more because they don't really understand where true fulfillment and happiness really is. But could we not just thank God for what we have? You can always look around and see somebody else in the world that doesn't have a good place to sleep tonight, didn't have any food to eat today, doesn't have a shower or bath or any place where they can be clean, don't have a family like this or a church family. They don't have it. So many wonderful things that we have, instead of be thinking about more to maybe thank God for the things He's already allowed to come our way, I think it would be a very wise thing. Of all the people in the Scripture, it would seem to me that David expressed his thankfulness to God more than any other Bible character. When you read the Psalms, you'll see it over and over and over. Psalm 100, verse 4, 
Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. What a wonderful thought that we would come into the house of God with that kind of spirit and that kind of attitude. You know, most people like to be around other people that have life and people that have a thankful spirit. And we have every reason probably to have one. Author W. Pink said, and each of these were quotes, he actually asked a question. He says, have we not more cause to praise him than to pray? Now, think about that. Because praise is thanksgiving. And he says, don't we have more cause to praise than to pray? You see, prayer is primarily asking. Not every single time, but for the most times it is. The Bible says we have not because we ask not. And then, of course, he says we ask and we receive not because we ask amiss in a way we shouldn't to consume it upon our own lust. But then let's get back to it. Because you do hear messages on prayer. It is true. I'm for it. It's good stuff. None of us do it enough. But the question was, shouldn't we probably praise more than we pray? Because praise is thanksgiving. Think about how much stuff God gave you that you never even asked for. Many times it's the things that we need the most that we don't have the sense to ask for. And God automatically just sends it our way. I wonder if we had an exercise tonight and everybody had a legal pad. We put a line down the middle. And on one side we put down how many things we prayed for that we'd like to have this last week. And then on the other side, how many times we said to somebody, let me tell you what God did for me. And you praise Him. I got an idea they wouldn't be equal. I know Baptists won't like this, but truth is truth. I think sometimes our charismatic friends are way ahead of us when it comes to praising God. They may have doctrinal problems. But you know, sometimes God may look at a doctrinal problem too and say, you know, sure is good to have a son or a daughter that recognizes what I do. There's not a parent around that doesn't like to have a son or a daughter that recognizes the sacrifice that you make to take care of them and provide for them the things that they need in life. Well, then he answers his own question, really, you know, and says, we should be more into praising God than petitioning Him. And many times our praise is kind of nebulous. We'll just say, God, and I hear people sometimes say, God is good. Well, I agree with that statement 100%, but it doesn't mean a lot to me when they say it. I'd rather them say, God is good to me, first of all. Make it personal And then if you can tack on the reason you're saying that, I like that. You understand sometimes people that don't know the Lord or they've just gotten saved, they don't have any idea what God forgave for them because we don't ever articulate it. And how many times God has gotten us out of a gym financially or physically speaking or didn't feel well or whatever the case is, over and over and over. I think most people out there don't even know it. And we have a wealth of experience that we should be using in order to help people like that. And then of all the people, maybe G.K. Chesterton, some of the men here probably have some of his books in their library, and he said, you say grace before meals. Now, that's Thanksgiving. My wife and I just yesterday were um, 
right off of Broadway on 39th Street, whatever one Macy's is on and right in through there from where we're staying over in Flushing. And there was called the New World Mall or whatever, and we, we saw a sign about a food court, so we went downstairs and there was a food court. And uh, I think pretty much all Asian food, and so that's fine with us. We, I just like food. Amen? Don't be picky. Let me give you an easy lifestyle. If it moves, give it a track. If it lays still, eat it. Or at least bite it. <laughs> so we, uh, we got our meals, and I'm telling you, that place was thick with people. And I was thinking, God, why didn't you call the Montoros to some place where they need folk? Because <laughs> they got a bunch, you know, but you got more now with the Montoros up here. And so we, I mean, we walked around that place three miles probably, looking, you know, waiting for somebody to jump on somebody's table as soon as they moved. And we finally jumped on this little table, and there was two other ladies sitting there already, and we said, is it okay? We said, oh, yeah, sit there and everything. And so as soon as we sat down, we put our food down, and... And I bowed my head, and, and I thank God for that food. And I raised my head up, and this lady sitting right across me, she looked at me, she said, You Christian? How did she know that? Thanksgiving. I said, Yes, ma'am, uh, we're Christians. She said, I'm Christian too. And we started talking a little bit. She said, What kind of Christian you? I Baptist. <laughs> I said, we be brother and sister. Uh, we're Baptist, and we just had a, a good conversation. Do you know how much stuff you miss when you don't identify God's goodness? And some people, they just think that's a big deal to bow their head and pray. I remember reading an old story that I loved about an old farmer in Arkansas. And this is years ago, and... Uh, he'd go to town about once a week in his old pickup truck and do some business. He'd been down on a town square taking care of business at the courthouse and went over to this little cafe to eat and by himself. And uh, he ordered the food and the food came and he just, I mean, he just put his elbows on the table and buried his face in his hand and started thanking God for his meal. Well, there was two or three younger guys over there watching everything he was doing and they kind of snickered kind of laughed at each other a little bit. In fact, as they walked over to the table, and about the time the old man got through praying, they looked at him and says, Hey, old man. He said, Yes. They said, Does everybody do that where you come from? He says, No. The hogs don't. Y'all know what a hog is up here, or y'all just don't laugh? <laughs> Humor is big stuff, you know, down. We, we like to laugh. The Bible says laughter is a good medicine. You ever read that? You haven't? Read the book. It's a good medicine and it's free and it won't hurt you because uh, prescription medicine now has passed up cars for the number one killer in America. God's prescriptions will always help you. They won't ever hurt you one bit. Now, Chesterton said, you know, uh, you say grace before meals, all right, but listen now, this is the rest of the quote, but I say grace before the concert. And I say grace before the opera, grace before the play or the pantomime. I say grace before I open and read a book. I say grace before sketching or painting or swimming or fencing or boxing. And I say grace before I dip my pen in the ink. End of quote. 
How are we doing now? Why does God owe you eyesight to read a book? Why does God owe any of us ears so we can hear music? It's not only that we can hear it. Isn't it amazing that man could appreciate music? I'm always amazed at beauty, at flower, the things he makes. But the most amazing thing is not that he makes a flower. The most amazing thing is, is that I understand that the flower is beautiful. I've never seen a dog taken back by it. Our brain's working okay. You know, God has done so much for us to be thankful for. And I remember reading that quote one time at a church with a bunch of cowboys. And one big old cowboy came up after the service. And I mean, tears were coming out of his eyes and literally dripping off his chin, Brother Pete. And he said, I always thought I was thankful until tonight. And it wasn't me. It was, he said that one quote. He looked at his hands and his feet and he said, God's been good to me. And uh, he'd been good to all of us tonight. Just no question about that at all. You know, Seneca said, we can be thankful for a few acres or a little bit of money that someone gives us. Yet for the freedom and command of the whole earth and for the great benefits of our being, our life, our health, and our reason, we look upon ourselves as under no obligation. As a matter of fact, sometimes in life, this is what we hear, someone's had it pretty good and all of a sudden sickness comes and hard times come. And they say, why me? That's not a good question. You know, G. Kimmel Morgan said, and I love reading after Morgan, he's deceased, what a great preacher. He said, when you walk out some morning, the sky's blue and the air's fresh and you breathe in a big lung full of it, you know, and, and you just feel like you could jump over a building flat-footed. It's, everything is good. Then look up and say, why me? Amen? That's when. You know what? We really deserve all of God's goodness and what we've done with it and how we've ruined so much of it. Um, that's the only way to do it. One final quote about this part is by Francis Schaeffer. Many of you maybe know his name. He's not been deceased all that long. But he said the beginning of men's rebellion against God. Think about this. The beginning of men's rebellion against God was and is the lack of a thankful spirit. That That's where it begins. You don't have rebellious teenagers if they're thankful or kids that are thankful or employees that are thankful or church members that are thankful because thankfulness and rebellion don't cohabit. They just really don't fit, probably, in the same Bible. Body, excuse me. So when we think about Americans and we think about Romans uh, and we look at this text, let me just give you a few thoughts on that. First of all, they knew that there was a God. No doubt about that. Because God has, first of all, revealed Himself in His creation. Does it not say that? It tells us that in verses 18 and 19 and 20. There isn't anyone that doesn't know there's a God. I mean, the 19th Psalm says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And we're thankful for the heavens. We're glad for the sunshine in the daytime. We're glad for the moon at night. And we can talk about all we want to. And and it does provide light for us. But God didn't give it to us primarily just to provide light. He gave it to us to tell us something about Himself. And a missionary will never go to a country who doesn't know there's a God. 
Moffat and Livingston back in the days when all there were were sailing ships and went to the, some of these dark continents and made their way through the jungle and the plains and the deserts. And their words were, we never found a village that didn't worship. Now, they don't know what they're worshiping. And that's the reason we have the Word of God. General revelation is the creation And the reason we have the creation, like I said, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth His handiwork. Day into day utter speech, and night into night showeth knowledge. There is no language or speech where their voice is not heard. You can speak. I mean, some of us have trouble speaking to each other. But when you see the creation, it doesn't make any difference what language you have. You just say, wow. What does the creation tell us about God? One thing it tells me, He's big. And then it tells me, He sure is good. Now, you may not think about that, but every time I see a big field of corn, I'm thinking, God's good. You say, why? Because I like corn. I like corn on the cob. Big ones. And you notice how He makes a row straight? That means eat it right. Don't chomp all over the place. You know, and turn it, and then don't even leave one kernel on that thing when you get through. I mean, God is good. All and I mean, all the food we've had up here. You understand? That's part of God's creation. We get to eat because God is so good. And so, there's not anyone that doesn't know there's a God because He's revealed it to us in His creation. And number two, He's revealed it to us in history. I've always appreciated J.A. Fruday's comment when he said one thing and one thing only that history teaches with certainty, and that is that somehow the world is built on moral foundations. And that in the long run, it goes ill for the wicked, and in the long run, it goes well for the good. And you mark that down that it's true. And if you know anything about World War II or any of the wars, when you see a nation that's a godly nation, that's a good nation, that treats people right, it'll go well for them. We were just talking today, walking down the street, and of course looking at a huge city like New York City, but you look at some of these other countries in the world. America became a world power while it was still a baby. And you read your Bible and read about Spain. Spain was already a country when the Bible was written. We were with the Densons in Germany a few years ago and ran across a pharmacy that in the same building it's always been, it opened in 1479. Columbus didn't even sail the ocean view to blue to 1492. And I'm thinking about how God elevated America. Unbelievable. America exploded onto the scene to become the unquestioned industrial economic leader and power of the world. But as she turns her back on America, on God, watch it reverse. And it will go down the tubes. Now you mark it down. That's a self-evident truth. You check history all you want. And you find nations that honor God, they're on their way up. And nations that don't, and they'll be on their way down. They knew there was a God. Americans know there's a God because how He revealed Himself in creation, because of history. In fact, as the president said, it is a duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, 
yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations are blessed whose God is the Lord, Abraham Lincoln. And then also God has revealed himself in personification as, as well. Look back over at verse 21. We said the key, the I see is the key verse. Because it when they knew God, they knew. And they should have glorified him as God. They didn't, but neither were thankful. So what happens? Well, it's strongly, but it's a strong conjunction, especially in the original became vain in their imaginations. You understand personification? Our persona is kind of who we are. We used to have a couple of brothers in our church years ago named Don and Ron McGuire. They were identical twins. And I'm telling you, it was tough to tell the difference. Until you could be around them and their personality, it didn't take but a moment. And then pretty soon you got it all figured out, you could tell the difference. I don't know if we give as much credit to the idea of our persona that we probably really should. Um, Think about all that man has done. You know, Rabbi Kushner asked this question. He said, can you see the holiness of God in a paved road or a washing machine? You know, when I read that, that made my brain kind of smoke trying to figure that out. I knew he had to be going someplace with it. And I had to think and think and think about that. The holiness of God. You know, God is holy. That's his primary attribute. You think about mankind and all of God's other creatures. Brother Dan lives in uh, Colorado. He'll get no reward at all when he gets to heaven because he's getting it all now. That's my opinion on it. That's my favorite state. Never had the chance to live there. You go out through Colorado and you see those 14,000-foot mountains, and I know there's other mountains, but they're just beautiful, just beautiful. And here it is, man, that thing just comes down just like that. Pretty good angle. And I'm thinking, what was it like when the first wagon tried to go through there? That thing had almost turned over. But, I mean, huge trees and boulders. No bulldozers. No backhoe. No power equipment. We're talking real men and women. What was that like to get that first wagon through there? And again, things about to turn over. And the whole time I'm thinking about that, I look down that mountain and then there's a kind of a little niche in it. And I'm driving 70 miles an hour on pavement. And then if you look every now and then, you'll see some mountain goat out there. You know who got to Colorado first? The mountain goats or us? You know the creation account? Did they get there first? You do read Genesis, right, Brother Pete? Okay. <laughs> they got there first. You know how many roads a mountain goats have built? None. They still get up and down the mountain the same way they always did. <laughs> kind of like in Oklahoma. You know how many horses have built barns? None. They're never going to. Well, what is the point? It says their imaginations, it became vain in their imaginations. You like word studies? What's a root for imagination? God created man in his image. The reason there's a paved road in Colorado is because of our imagination. Because God is a creator. 
God makes things that never existed before. And the only way you can do that is if you have an imagination. And that's the reason Rabbi Kushner could say, can you see the holiness of God in a paved road? You ought to be able to because no other creature, and I'm someone say we're just a higher species. No, we're not just a higher species. We're made in the image of God and it makes us totally different. You know, when we leave here, when you try to get around town, just remember, no cars, no bicycles, no trains, no nothing. If it were not for the fact that God's a creator and made us in His image. What does the verse say? Became vain in their imaginations. You know what the word vain means? It means empty. America's really feeling the effects of that. I don't have time to talk to you about it a lot. I am a little bit of a student of World War II. That was, a, uh, that was really two wars, wasn't it? Even though it all happened at the same time, either side, European campaign or, you know, in the Pacific, bigger than anything else, each one by itself that we've ever dealt with. I read that they could design and produce a completely new plane in less than two years. And I remember the Boeing 787 being advertised in the papers. And I'm not mistaken, it's been about 15 years, 16 years now. At the same time, they said they were going to come up with a composite airplane called a Dreamliner. Then Airbus, which is their major competition over in Europe, decided, no, we're not going to go that route. We're going to build a big plane that seats 800 people. And here they're going. And I'm thinking, come on, Boeing, get that plane built. And then Airbus is built by different countries in Europe, and they got at odds with each other. And if I'm not mistaken, nearly two years, they didn't do anything on it. Well, I wasn't happy about their demise, but I am for my, my country and so forth. And I'm saying, come on, Boeing, get that plane out. And they just couldn't. They like to never got that thing flying. And then when they did, they had fires and they grounded them all. And still right now. It's not going like it should. Well, let me try to say that another way. So, here a few years ago, I was in McDonald's. And I ordered something, and it was $3.10. And I pulled out a five. Laid the $5 bill on the counter. And then I felt something in my pocket, and I pulled out a dime. And the guy said, don't even think about it. Because if I had put that dime down, he'd already put it in the computer. He'd had no way in his mind to make change. I'm telling the truth. If you haven't got someone try to count out change, and I've got a friend named Ron Todd that lives in Ormond Beach, Florida right now, that when I was in the Navy, he was in the Air Force. We were both stationed in Charleston, South Carolina. And he, I was, of course, Grace and I were married. He was single, and he'd hang out at our place, especially on Sundays and other times. In fact, he liked to go to the grocery store when Grace would buy groceries because, you know, he kind of liked to make some suggestions while she was getting it. Anybody here old enough to remember how they used to check out groceries when it still had the price on the can? Is there? Brother Pete, are we the only two? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> some of y'all look like you're just not... How come you're not raising your hand? Okay. 
Uh, I wish I had more proof here, but I'm telling you, those ladies that run the 10K, they never looked at it. They never looked at it. And the cans are going just like this. I mean, I mean, as fast as I'm moving my hand, that's how fast the cans were going down that counter. Because I was a sack boy. And I had trouble putting the cans in the sack as fast as they came over. And I gave my total self to it. And now it is beep. You know, and beep. Ron used to watch that. I mean, as fast as they were going. And when the last can went over, he would give the amount. Four times out of five, if not nine times out of ten, two, the penny from the time the last can came over till she totaled it. And I'm thinking about the $3.10 today. Now, we can laugh, and it is funny. But the sad thing is, it's true. And what happens is, is when you don't treat God like you're supposed to, He gave us that imagination, and He can mess with it. And it says here, it became vain. And America's becoming to the point she can't compete in the world market. You can blame the schools and all of that, and they do have their troubles. But the biggest problem is we're turning our back on God. And it's going to take us down the tubes. I wish it were not so. We need to think about what all is going on. Well, I don't want Terry to spend any more time right there. We'll just move right on. Well, Sarah Ben Brethnick said, and I quote, You simply will not be the same person two months from now after you consciously give thanks each day for the abundance that exists in your life, and you will have set in motion an ancient spiritual law that the more you have and are grateful for, the more that will be given to you. I believe that is so true. You know, God burdened my heart from this section of Scripture, and it changed my prayer life. My normal, I'm a real creature of habit. My wife says, I can write down everything you're going to do every morning from the time you get up for probably an hour. You know, right in order. And that's, that's probably true. But I get up, you know, go to the, the bathroom and kind of freshen myself a little bit up. I'm primarily to take showers at night, so in the morning I just partial, you know. And I head downstairs, our bedrooms are all upstairs, and I go straight in the kitchen and make a fresh pot of coffee. Amen, Brother Dan? You're supposed to be my rooting section over here. Not going to get anything out of your buddy over there. And then I take my fresh cup of coffee and go in my office and open my Bible and read the Word of God. Just have some fellowship time. And then after that, then I just get down on my knees and, and I pray. And this is the way I used to pray. Of course, I always started with my wife and I say, Lord, be with grace today and give her a good day and make it a profitable day and then I pray for my son and my daughter-in-law and my grandkids and people I'm close to. And then I pray geographically. That's why I remember preachers best geographically and pray for them and their churches and their families. And I just made one small change. Instead of just saying, Lord, be with grace today, I said, Lord, uh, thank you for my wife. Thank you for grace. She's a good wife. She's a good mother. She's a good grandmother. And I didn't say, Lord bless Wayne, but thank you for Wayne, and thank you for Lisa, my daughter-in-law, and thank you for my three grandchildren, and not just pray for my friends and loved ones, but thank you. The people that you sit around, what would it be like if God took them out of your life? 
Have you ever thanked God for them? They're better than any kind of car or toy or anything else you've ever had. You know that? It's just a wonderful thing to be able to thank God for them. When we were in Charleston, South Carolina, we went to a church called Hanahan Baptist Church when I was in the Navy. That would have been 1962 to 1966 when I served on a submarine. Hobson Wolf was our pastor's name, and Brother Wolf had never been to Bible college and kind of rough on the king's language, but he faithfully preached the Word of God. And we grew. When I got out of the Navy, I came back to Texas and went to work for Bell Helicopter briefly before going to Bible college. I was talking to my wife one day, and I said, Hun, I don't think we ever expressed our thanks to Brother Wolf being a faithful pastor. He said, well, that's his job. So... It's still appropriate when you benefit to give thanks. I said, I don't think I ever thanked him for being a faithful preacher of the Word of God. She said, you're going to write him? I said, no, I don't think that'll work. She said, you're going to call him on the phone? I said, no, I don't think that'll work either. She said, do you remember 1,200 miles to Charleston, South Carolina? I said, yeah, we better put it on the calendar, hadn't we? We put it on the calendar. Time came, and I called a couple of people out there without him knowing it to make sure he's going to be home, be in town. We drove out there and went up to his house, and I can't talk like those people in the Deep South, but just kind of knocked on the door. Brother Wolf came to the door himself, and he said something like, Lord, have mercy. You kids get in this here house, you know. And uh, by the way, no one's called his kids for a while, so feel free, you know, if that kind of fits your thing. And so we came in and sat down and talked a few minutes. And he said, now what brings you kids out here? Even then we're about 30 years old, but he was like 60s. So, you know, a little bit younger than we are now. Uh, he said, what brings you kids out here? I said, Brother Wolf, we came out here to thank you for being a faithful preacher of the Word of God. We benefited from it so much. Well, then he took off on something else. And about 5, 10, 15 minutes later, he said, But now, what brings you kids out here? I said, Brother Wolf, we came out here to thank you for being such a faithful pastor while we were in Charleston, South Carolina. My wife's sitting there, God's my witness. He took off on something else, and the third time he said, But what brings you kids out here? I said, Brother Wolf, look at me. And he looked me right in the eye. I said, We came here to say, Thank you for your investment in our life. And uh, he never cried, but the tears welled up in his eyes. And we had a good time. And the next day we came back, visited with him some more, and then we drove on home. One but a few months later, Brother Wolf was gone. We've been a lot of places and enjoyed it a lot. Someone probably say, what's the, one of the best trips y'all ever took? Oh, it was a drive out to Charleston, South Carolina to express appreciation for a man who stood faithful to the Word of God and made our lives so much better than it would have been had he not been there. Now, this is my last comment. Now, if tonight, and it could happen, if tonight, Before the sun comes up tomorrow. But if tonight God takes away from you everything you haven't thanked Him for, 
what you're going to have left. And let's stand. Father, thank you for your goodness. And again, I've said that word so much, I'm sure it sounds trite just now for the moment. I don't know how else to express it. Your goodness is overwhelming. And everyone here has had a hard time. We have too. That doesn't mean you're not good. The hard times in life, primarily because of the sin factor that entered into the world, you didn't bring it. We did. And had myself and the other men of the church been, maybe if we had been Adam, I suspect we would have fallen as well because we've sinned our own sins. God, you've been so good. So one more time, I just want to tell you I appreciate everything you've done for me. And if life were to end tonight, or if my health and everything was gone, I would really not have any reason, Lord, to think that you've not been good to me because you've been so good. So as we come to the invitation time, there may be those who would say, like me, I haven't expressed my thanks as much as I should, and I certainly haven't done it with other people. And even though I may be afraid to witness sometimes, I don't know why I would ever be afraid to say, let me tell you what God did for me, or God has been so good, and then mention what you've done. Thank you for the privilege to be here tonight with this pastor and his family and this church. Lord, to travel around together with my two pastor friends and their wives. Oh, so many good things. I'm going to ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we have a moment of invitation, if you need to come and express your appreciation of the Lord, that's up to you.